When I think about First Church, I think about a people who love Jesus and love like Jesus. Sometimes people wonder why we do what we do, why we give so generously, why we love those everyone else avoids, why we seek those everyone else ignores, why we dance when no one else hears the music, why we stick together when everyone else is so divided, why we show compassion in a world full of injustice. The answer is simple. It's because of Jesus. He's changed the way we see everything. He's the reason why we live. The answer is simple. Jesus is why. Hey, welcome to First Church. We're so glad you're here. Our mission is to love Jesus and love like Jesus. And right now we have family meeting at our Stone Canyon campus as well as others who will be joining us later online. So if you would here at North Carnet, put your hands together. Welcome them into our time of study here today. Now, for those of you who know me well, you know that I try to eat pretty healthy. In fact, I live by a pretty strict diet. And so I want to see how many of you guys are with me. I like to take polls here to see where our church is, if you guys agree with me or not, or if we can be friends. And so I want to take a quick poll to see how healthy you guys eat. So we're getting close to lunchtime, right? And if you had to choose right now between one of these two options, which one would you pick? I have a couple of things we're going to vote on, a few things we're going to vote on. And the first... I want you to vote between a large, extra large cookie or a fruit cup, okay? So I want to see who would pick right now, no strings attached, no consequences, no one's going to judge you. Would you pick the large cookie or the fruit cup? So let me hear you shout it out. Who would pick the cookie? All right. Good number of you. How many of you guys would pick the fruit cup? Really? A lot more than I thought. Awesome. Okay. Well, maybe I can have some more friends in this place. Okay. Great. Let's try another option, couple options. If you had to pick a side when you went to a restaurant, you know, normally they ask you, you want fries or baked potato, maybe vegetables. But what I have this morning, plate of French fries or some broccoli. So I want to see which you would pick right now. A little bit more difficult. I hear some rumbling out there. Okay. Don't stone me. I'm not going to judge you. Okay. Who would pick the plate of French fries? Okay, who would pick the plate of broccoli? You guys are trying to make me feel good, aren't you? I, I, I tell, I, let, me, let me let you know, my son Alex, he's five, he would pick broccoli every time. He loves broccoli, and we haven't brainwashed him or anything. He just really likes broccoli. He would pick it every time we went to a restaurant. But here comes the real test. This is the main course, the main dish. If you had to pick between a grilled chicken salad or a juicy cheeseburger, which one would you pick? So let's do the healthy option first. How many guys would pick the salad with grilled chicken on it? All right. How many guys would pick the juicy cheeseburger? You know, I think maybe we had more salad people than we did cheeseburger. I did not expect that at all. That is cool. Well, those of you who know me know that I eat salads all the time. But before I talk about that, I've had this broccoli for like two days, so it stinks up here. I'm going to put it back in this Tupperware so I don't have to smell it through the whole sermon. You ever get broccoli in a to-go bag or something you leave it in your car? Oh, man, that's the nastiest smell ever. Okay, put that up so I don't have to smell it. 
I eat salads all the time. I'm not kidding with you. I probably eat salads nine out of 10 meals. I really do. My go-to meal is a salad with grilled chicken on it. Sometimes I change up the toppings. Sometimes I put different salad dressing on it. But my go-to meal is a salad with grilled chicken on it. It's what I order when I go out to eat. That's what I fix at home. And typically in our home, Allison will fix food for her and the kids. And then I'm on my own because I always eat something different. So I'm on my own. And the other night I came home and from the office, Alex, I mean, Allison was already fixing supper for the kids, for Alex and Eddie, and as soon as I walked in the kitchen, I realized I'm out of chicken. I'd used up the last bit of grilled chicken we had the night before, and I didn't have any chicken. So I walked in the kitchen, saw Allison fixing this food, and I said, I'm either going to have to run out and get some chicken, or I'm going to go vegetarian tonight. And she looked at me, and she said, don't worry about it. I looked today and saw that you were out of chicken, and so I ran out, and I got you some. And I just thought that was so sweet and so nice. And I said out loud in front of my kids for them to hear, I said, Allison, you are the best wife ever. And Alex, my little boy, looked at me and he said, because of chicken? And I was like, yeah, because of chicken. Why not? And I went on to explain to him that it's not just because of chicken. I mean, it's a pattern. I mean, it shows a pattern of how she treats me and loves me and it's great. And so I tried to explain this to him. I said, yeah, it's kind of because of chicken. And he said, daddy, I just will never understand you. And I thought, you know, that's probably not the last time he's going to say that. He's probably going to have moments throughout his life where he looks at me and says, Daddy, I just don't get you. I just don't understand you. And I'm okay with that because I've been misunderstood a lot in life. Uh, there have been times when people have looked at me and just scratched their heads and said, Chad, we just don't get you. And you've probably had those moments too because we're all a little bit different. But one thing that I have found, the longer I try to live for Jesus, the more I try to make sure that my faith is genuine and real and, and authentic, the more experiences I've had where people look at me as if I'm a little different. People look at me as if I'm a little odd. People scratch their heads and they wonder, why does he do that? Why does he say that? Why doesn't he do that when everybody else is doing it? The longer I live for Jesus and the more I try to live an authentic, real, genuine life with him, the more people look at me and I just kind of get the impression like they just don't get it. Now, it's not that they're anti-Jesus or anti-the church, but you've probably experienced this. People will ask you, why are you so dedicated to the church anyway? Why do you set aside a tithe, a tenth of your money, and give it to the church? That's your hard-earned money. Why do you do that? Why do you give up time to go serve people like you do? Why do you devote so much time to the church's ministry? Why is it you give up your spring break to go on a mission trip? Why is it that you love those who don't love you back? Why do you forgive those who don't deserve it? Why is it that you live with such hope? Why do you live with such satisfaction and peace in a world that's often chaotic and stressful? People look at us sometimes, they say, we just don't get it. You have something we have, and it just doesn't make any sense to us. And it used to be when people would question why I live the way I live, I would try to come up with this real clever, overly clarifying answer to give them. But over the past few years, I've stopped trying to come up with a clever answer. And I just look at them and I give them one word, one name, and it's Jesus. When people wonder why I do the things I do or don't do the things I do or why I say the things I say, I just look at him and I say, it's because of Jesus, because of him. Jesus is why. He's changed everything for me. 
And I know many of you could say the same. The reason why we serve the way we do, the reason why we make sacrifices like we do, the reason why we're so invested in his mission, the reason why we live with what the world considers to be uncommon love, grace, and hope, it's because of Jesus. Jesus is why. And he's changed the way we see life. And because of our relationship with him, nothing will ever be the same. But you know, if I'm being transparent with you, that hasn't always been the case at least in my life, for me in my life. In 1996, a pipe fitter named Stan Caffey bought a copy of the Declaration of Independence, a replica copy, so we thought, at a neighborhood yard sale. He's kind of patriotic, so he went back to his garage where he liked to work on bicycles and lawnmowers, and he put this copy of the Declaration of Independence up on the wall. And you can, you've probably seen these before in stores, maybe online, just a copy of the Declaration of Independence. It's kind of neat to have, kind of neat to look at and try to read, even though it's hard to read in their handwriting. So he bought a copy, kind of like that one, put it up in his garage, and it was there for years. And then one day his wife came out to his garage and said, Stan, you need to clean up this place. It's a mess. You got a lot of junk out here you need to get rid of. And Stan looked at his wife and said, I'm not getting rid of any of this stuff. I love it. And you know what? Stan cleaned out his garage. And so his wife boxed up a bunch of his junk and took it to a local thrift store, Nashville, Tennessee, the Music City Thrift Store. And so one thing that she boxed up was his copy of the Declaration of Independence that was on his wall for years. He was there for several weeks, and another man, a man by the name of Michael Sparks, was shopping at the Music City thrift store, and he noticed this unique copy of the Declaration of Independence and thought, that'd be cool to have. He paid $2.48 for it, brought it back home, looked over it again, and thought, you know, there's something different about this copy. I want to have some experts look at it. Come to find out, it was one of the original copies officially made by order of then Secretary of State John Quincy Adams in 1820. There were 200 of those copies made. There are only about 20 or so known to still be in existence. This was another one. And here's a picture of Michael Sparks with his copy of the Declaration of Independence. He later sold that copy at auction for almost a half a million dollars. Paid $2.48 for it. Now, I know what some of you guys are probably wondering, what did Stan the pipe fitter think about all this? Well, they interviewed him. So what do you think about Michael Sparks and getting all this money out of your copy of the Declaration of Independence? And Stan said, you know, I'm happy for Michael because if I still had that document, it would still be hanging on my garage wall because I had no idea what I possessed. I had no idea what I had. And then he went on to say, but you know, I can't help but feel a little dumb about the whole thing. And some of you guys in the room who are hoarders, you're looking at your spouse right now saying, see, that's why you don't throw anything out. But I don't want to get into that argument. My wife, she pitches everything. I like to keep things. See, Allison, that's why we keep stuff right there. You never know what you might have. But I thought his comment was very interesting. I had no idea what I had. And I'm going to be very transparent with you. For a large chunk of my life, When it came to my relationship with Jesus, I honestly had no idea what I had. Oh, I knew Jesus. There hasn't been a time in my life when I didn't know Jesus. I grew up in church. I'm what we like to call around here a Buick, a brought-up-in-church kid, a Buick. I grew up in church. I was in children's church and Sunday school all my life. And I knew Jesus. I accepted Jesus at a young age. I was baptized into him. I knew him. But for a large chunk of my life, I had no idea just how valuable that relationship was, just how powerful that relationship was. I think, honestly, I missed 
what I possessed. And I bet many of you could say the same thing. I bet many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because I meet a lot of people who see Jesus as a nice idea or maybe even useful to have around. I mean, they believe that he can help them live a better life, be more kind and nice. They see him as a good moral example and they want their kids to know about him because he is a good moral example. I mean, he's a nice religious rabbit foot you can pull out of your pocket whenever you go through uh, troublesome times. And he, by far, is the best way to get to the good place when you die. So we like having Jesus around. But what if Jesus came to me more than just a nice moral example? What if his death and resurrection were supposed to be meant for more than just to give us the minimal requirements to get to the good place when we die? See, I had to come to the realization years ago that Jesus wanted to be much more in my life than what I had allowed him to be. And several years ago, I woke up to this truth. It's a truth that I've been ignoring and missing and overlooking for years, and it's this. Following Jesus is not just about going to heaven when you die. It's actually more about getting heaven into you before you die. Let me say that again. Following Jesus is not just about going to heaven when you die. Yes, there is a literal heaven and hell, and those who follow Jesus will go to heaven when they die, and those who don't will go to hell. I'm not denying that. But the main reason why we follow Jesus right now is to bring heaven to earth, to get heaven into us before we die. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying a prayer to his Father right before he goes to the cross. And listen to what he says. In this passage, Jesus defines eternal life for us. And most of the time when we hear the, the term eternal life, we think of the place we go when we die. But listen to what Jesus says in John 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life. Here he is, Jesus himself, Son of God, defining for us eternal life. And look at what he says. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, me, whom you have sent. Jesus, you want to know what eternal life is? It's having a relationship with God. Jesus doesn't talk about the place we go when we die. What he talks about is knowing God, living in a relationship with him, a transformational relationship with him, where he leads you and he guides you. He gives you satisfaction, fulfillment, and hope. And that relationship with him starts now, and then it brings us into eternity. That's how Jesus defines eternal life. And it's the idea that the more God is present in you, the more he takes up residence in your heart, the more he will overflow from you so that the world experiences his presence. It's the idea that the more Christians we have on the earth, the bigger the church gets. The world will experience the presence of God more and more because we're not here just to hold on and wait until we die. We don't accept Jesus, get baptized, and then we just hold on and wait until we die to go be with him. No, we live with him now. He's in us now. And that relationship we have with him overflows to those around us so that the people who are far from him get a taste of him through our daily behavior and actions. Maybe that's why Jesus said in another prayer that he gave, Matthew 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God lets your kingdom reign Break into this earth through us. If Jesus prayed for God's will to be done on earth as is now done in heaven, 
for his kingdom reign to break into the earth through us, if he prayed that, guys, it could happen. And that should be our prayer as well. And honestly, I believe that that's why the earliest Christians that we study in the book of Acts, I believe that's why they changed the world the way they did. I believe that's why they had such an impact and literally changed the course of human history because they believed they weren't here just to hang on until they died. They believed their relationship with God was the beginning of their eternal life now. And no matter where they went, to the synagogue, to the temple, to the marketplace, in their homes, wherever they went, they were showing people the presence of God. And the same should be true for us, whether we're in Walmart, on the ball field, at our place of work, no matter where we are, school, wherever. It's our job to allow the presence of God to break into this world through us. And one of the best examples in the book of Acts, in the early history of the church, that I see of this, it's probably my favorite example, is found in Acts chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app or on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me, Acts chapter 16. And that's where we're going to be camped out for the rest of the time we have here together. And I love this passage because I think it's a great example of how these early followers of Jesus understood they were here to let heaven break into the earth through them. And in Acts chapter 16, what we discover is that Paul and Silas, two early followers of Jesus, are living in the city of Philippi. And everywhere they go, they're harassed by this slave girl who the Bible says is possessed by an evil spirit. See, this evil spirit in her realizes that Paul and Silas are servants of the one true God. This evil spirit recognizes that. So everywhere Paul and Silas go in town, this girl follows them around, shouting at them, screaming at them, harassing them. But here's a little backstory about this slave girl who was possessed by this evil spirit. This evil spirit gave her some supernatural powers. The Bible says that in some limited way, this girl was able to predict the future. She was a fortune teller. And so people from all over the region, all over the area, came to have their fortune told by this slave girl. You know what that meant? Her owners made a lot of money off her. The slave owners who owned this girl, they made a ton of money off her. Because businessmen, political leaders, wealthy people, famous people came to her to get their fortune told. Before business would, businessmen would make a transaction, they would go to her and say, hey, will this deal work out or not? People from all over came to get their fortune told by this girl. And what that meant is her owners made a ton of money off her. But now she recognizes Paul and Silas as servants of the one true God. She's going around harassing them. And so Paul decides to relieve her of the torturous treatment that this evil spirit is giving her. And he casts the demon, casts the evil spirit out of her. And this girl is now set free for the first time in probably years. But her owners aren't real happy about it. Because Paul has just unplugged her psychic hotline. And you guys know this. You mess with people's financial portfolio. You mess with their investments. You mess with their retirement, their 401k. You mess with their bank account. They get mad real quick. And the owners of this slave girl are furious at Paul and Silas. So let's read and see what happens. Acts 16, starting at verse 19. It says, When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful, for us Romans to accept and practice. 
Basically, these men bring Paul and Silas before the magistrates, the city officials, and they say, these men are disturbing the peace. And Rome was all about keeping the peace. See, these men, they are practicing beliefs and customs that are contrary to what Romans typically believe and practice, and they are disrupting the peace. You guys need to do something about it. And so these men who own this slave girl, they get the whole city into an uproar. They basically start this smear campaign against Paul and Silas. And let's read on and see what happens. Verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, before we go any further, I think we need to understand what Paul and Silas just experienced. We don't need to brush by this text and say, oh, yeah, they were flogged. Flogging in the ancient world was a huge deal. So let's talk about that. It says, the passage says, Paul and Silas were severely flogged. This was no small event. It involved this invention, a whip, known as the cat of nine tails. And this is kind of gruesome, but this is what Paul and Silas experienced. It was basically a whip that had a wooden handle and had nine leather strips on the end of it. And within these leather strips were embedded pieces, sharp pieces of metal, rock, bone. And basically what would take place is they would place a prisoner on a pole, on a post, they would tie him there to where his skin was stretched as far as it could be stretched on his back. And then they would place a Roman soldier on each side of the prisoner. And then starting at his shoulders, going all the way down, they would take turns whipping him back and forth, back and forth. But here's the thing, they didn't just whip him. They would allow for the pieces of metal and bone and rock to sink into his skin. And then they would pull and stretch it, literally filleting the flesh, exposing the spine. According to one Roman historian, six out of ten men in the ancient world didn't survive flogging. That's what Paul and Silas experienced. But then to make matters worse, after they were finished being severely flogged, the Bible says... They were placed in a prison cell in Philippi. In the Roman prison in Philippi, it was underground, it was dark, it was damp, it was dirty. It actually was the sewage runoff for the entire city. So imagine just experiencing flogging and then being placed in an underground cell where the stench was just horrible and you were surrounded by sewage. And then to make matters even worse than that, the Bible says they were placed in stocks which means that they were placed in a position where their arms and their legs were stretched to the point of excruciating pain, and then their head was tied to the wall so that they could not rest, could not sleep. That's what Paul and Silas experienced, all because they tried to help out this slave girl, all because they were telling people about Jesus. And what's interesting to me is that it's from that position of misery after being flogged, after being placed in stocks, and while you're in stocks being surrounded by sewage in this damp, dirty, unsanitary prison, it's from that position of pain, agony, and misery that the Bible says something very interesting happens. 
Acts 16 verse 25 says, about midnight, they've been in prison now all this time, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. In the middle of the night, after being arrested and falsely accused, after being flogged, after being placed in stocks, after being surrounded by sewage in this dirty, unsanitary prison cell, what are Paul and Silas doing? They're singing. Why? What would there to be to sing about in that situation? Why would they be singing? Here's the thing, they weren't just singing any old songs. They weren't singing the blues or crying in your beer or country music. No, the Bible says that they were singing songs of praise to God. And when you look at the Greek terminology used here, it seems to indicate that they were singing rich, robust songs of praise and worship. And then the passage says that as they were singing, the other prisoners were listening to them. As Paul and Silas sang these songs of praise, the other prisoners were leaning in and probably wondering, what is there to sing about in a place like this? Who would be singing in a place like this? But I think probably the better question is, why were they singing? And I'm convinced that if Paul and Silas were standing on the stage with me today, I think what they would tell you if you asked them, why were you singing? I think they would give you one word, one name, and it's the name Jesus. Jesus is why. Locked up, tied up, beaten up, yet they were more free than anyone around them. More free than those holding them captive. More free than the magistrates. More free than the Roman Empire. More free than the owners of that slave girl. More free than any other prisoner in that place. Locked up, tied up, beaten up, yet they were more free than anyone else around them. Because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, because of Jesus, they had reason to sing. And nothing that this world did to them could take away their reason for singing. And the same is true for us today. Because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, we have reason to sing even when nothing else seems to be going right. Because Jesus has given us hope that is eternal. He's given us a promise that outlasts this world. He's giving us a life that is bigger than what most people ever live for. He's given us reason to sing, even on our worst day. And let me share some reasons why we can sing, even on our worst day. First of all, we sing because we know who's in control. Ultimately, we know who's in control. And no matter what this world does to us, it doesn't change who's on the throne. You guys may not know this about me, but one of my favorite books of the entire Bible is the book of Revelation. I love to study the book of Revelation. And the reason why I study is not because I'm obsessed with signs and symbols and I'm trying to figure out the future. In fact, I think Jesus warns us not to do that. No, the reason why I study the book of Revelation and love to study it is because I believe it was meant to be a book of hope. In fact, I believe there is not, well... It's one of the most encouraging books in all the Bible. I read it for devotional reading. I love the book of Revelation. And you know why? Because it reminds us over and over and over again that Jesus wins. 
Jesus is victorious. That no matter what this world does to us, no matter how Satan is scheming against us, Jesus is victorious. Jesus wins. God has already won the battle between good versus evil, between life versus death, between darkness and light. God has already won that battle through the self-sacrificial love of His Son. And we are promised that if we are faithful now, we will be victorious with Him. I love studying the book of Revelation. And one of my favorite parts in the book of Revelation comes at the very beginning. John's the author of the book of Revelation, the apostle. He's actually the last apostle living, and he has heard, he knows that all of his fellow apostles, you know, Peter and James and Thomas and all the rest, they've all been martyred, killed for their faith. He's the last one alive, and the church is experiencing extreme persecution. Christians are dying every day. Their homes are being burned. They're losing their jobs, and John, as the last apostle living, the Roman Empire doesn't know what to do with him, so they exile him to an island prison called Patmos, kind of the Alcatraz of his day. And he's there all alone, imprisoned, away from all the people he loves, away from his church family, away from his brothers and sisters. And he's there, he says, in Revelation 1 verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he's been exiled. And as he's living in exile, worried about the church, concerned about the future of the church, Sunday rolls around. And you know what the Bible says John is doing on Sunday? Revelation 1 verse 10. He writes, it was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. What would make you sing in an environment like that? Christians were dying every day. He's the last apostle living, and he's been exiled. What would make you sing? John is imprisoned on the Alcatraz of his day, in the Alcatraz of his day, and Sunday rolls around. You know what he's doing? Matt Proctor, the president of Ozark Christian College, writes in his commentary, it's the Lord's Day, so John is having his own personal worship service. He's worshiping. He's singing. Why? Because he knows something that I think we often forget. When you feel like worshiping the least is when you need it the most. It's kind of like when a whale comes up for air. You guys know this. Whales in the ocean, they spend the majority of their time underwater but ever so often regularly they have to come up to the surface in order to get air in order to survive life below and I think that's what we're called to do as well that's what we have to do as well we live down here in a world that is often chaotic and confusing and corrupt And if we're going to survive, we've got to regularly come up for air. We've got to come and taste the atmosphere of heaven to remember who's on the throne. Because if not, it's easy to get discouraged. We've got to constantly be reminded who's in control, who's really calling the shots. And I think in Acts chapter 16, the reason why Paul and Silas could sing at midnight is because they needed to be reminded who was in control, who was sitting on the throne. And once they were reminded of that, they couldn't stop singing. Because they were reminded that life as they saw it was not how it really is. God was on the throne and they were part of his kingdom. And the one who was calling the shots wasn't a magistrate in Philippi. It wasn't a member of the Roman Empire. It wasn't one of the slave girl's owners. No, the one who was in control was the king of kings and lord of lords. And nothing they faced was greater than him. See, I think that's why regular worship is so important. Because in the presence of God, our earthly fears assume their proper size. And today, I don't know what you're facing. If you're facing pain because of loss of a loved one, 
If you're facing, if you're facing pain because of an abusive situation, if you're facing pain because somebody's broke your heart, if you're facing pain today because you've lost a job, or maybe you're struggling with addiction, or maybe there's some other sin in your life that's getting the best of you, if you're struggling in any way whatsoever, you're feeling isolation or loneliness, apathy, let me tell you something, no matter what you're facing, it's not greater than the God you serve. And He is on the throne, and in His presence, our fears assume their proper size. That's why I love what John, Reese, John Weiss, a good friend of mine, writes in one of his books. He says, we don't sing to God because life is good. We sing to God because God is good. The more pain we have, the more we need to sing. Singing helps us trust God when we don't feel like trusting God. It helps us see Him when we can't see Him. Close one eye to the problem you are facing and focus your open eye on God. Big problems become small when you are looking at a big God. I love that. But we also sing today because we've been given a new identity. See, Jesus gives us reason to sing because he's given us a new identity before God. The world tears us down, beats us up, labels us, time stamps us because of our past. But Jesus reminds us that no matter how the world sees us, what truly matters is how God sees us. And if we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God sees us as his beloved and cherished children. We have a heavenly Father who has forgiven us, who has shown us grace, and who loves us with a desperate kind of love. And no matter what this world does to us or what they call us, they cannot take away our identity as the children of God, the beloved children of God. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. I remember several years ago when I first started in ministry, I was having a rough season. We had let a staff member go that needed to be let go, but some people in the church didn't understand it. We also had another um, church leader who had had a major moral failing, so much to the point, to the extent that the local news media showed up to talk to us about it, one of those. And I had done nothing wrong, but still I was bearing all the weight of that, and our church was going through some, some troublesome times, and it was rough. And I remember thinking to myself as I was dealing with all that, a young guy right out of Bible college, is ministry really what I want to do? Do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? And I came home one night, we didn't have kids yet, and I was talking to Allison and my phone rang and there was a member of our church, an older gentleman who had, who had cancer and I knew, I knew he had just been given a few weeks to live. It was bad. And they said they had taken him back to the hospital because they had sent him home to spend the rest of his days at home. They had sent him back to the hospital and they asked if I'd come pray with him, so I did. And I remember the whole drive to the hospital thinking, is ministry really what I want to do for the rest of my life? And I got to the hospital, and I went into his room, and all of his family, they were gone. It was just him. I'd missed them somehow. And I remember I went up to his bedside, and he was still alert, but he was very weak. So I grabbed his hand, we talked for a while, and then I said, can I pray with you? And he said, sure. So I prayed with him, and, and I got ready to let go of his hand. And when I did, he grabbed onto my hand even tighter with as much strength as he had, which wasn't a lot. But he grabbed onto my hand even tighter, and he said, Chad, can I pray for you? I was, sure, yeah. So then he prayed for me and he said, God, make sure Chad never forgets that he is loved by you. That no matter what anybody says about him, no matter what Satan throws at him, that he will always know that what matters is that you love him, you are with him, and you are on his side, and he can face anything he has to face because he is your child. And then after that man prayed that prayer, again, I got ready to let go of his hand, and he grabbed my hand again. Wouldn't let me go. 
And I'll never forget what happened. This was a man who was weak. His, he was ate up with cancer. I remember his eyes were bloodshot. I mean, he was... I'd known that man before he had cancer, and he just looked so weak in that moment. And as he held my hand in that hospital bed, he started to sing. And I'll never forget what he's saying. It's an old hymn. You've probably heard it. Never get the words. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he loved me. A sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And he looked at me when he got done singing and he said, never stop singing about the love of Jesus. I walked out of that hospital room and I leaned up against the wall in the hallway and I remember I just, I just stood there forever and cried. Because I realized that no matter what anybody does to me because of the love that God has for me, I have reason to sing. And nobody can take that love away from me. And the same is true for all of us who've been covered by His grace. And that leads me to the last, to the last uh, reminder that I think we need in order to keep on singing. And it's this. We have a place in God's story. Because of God's love for us, we have a place in His story. God's love has changed us, but it's not just changed us in the sense that He's forgiven us and given us new identity. He's also changed our purpose. The relationship we have with Him is transformational. And we now live for something bigger than ourselves, bigger than just what we see around us. He's given us a new purpose. And guys, the stakes are high because the decisions we make can make eternal differences in the lives of others. The decisions we make can help His kingdom break into this world in a very powerful way. Because here's the thing, we are surrounded by people every single day who need a reason to sing. We're, we rub elbows with people and make eye contact with people who are looking for a reason to sing, who are living without meaning, living without purpose, who don't feel like their life is valuable. They want a reason to sing, and we have a song for them to sing. And when people see us singing in the midst of rough times, it's contagious, and they want to they know what we have. They want to sing our song. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 16. See, at the end of this passage, Acts 16 verse 33 says that Paul and Silas have a chance to talk with the jailer. And the jailer wants to know basically about this God that they serve. And Paul and Silas tell him about their God. And look at what verse 33 says. The jailer and all of his family were baptized he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. This is a Roman jailer who had put Paul and Silas in stocks. And now at the end of our passage, he and his whole family are baptized. Why? Because they had seen something different in Paul and Silas. They had heard something different in Paul and Silas. They had heard a song they had never heard before. And guys, when we sing, the world leans in and listens because they want to sing a song like the song we sing. And this Easter, we have a great opportunity to invite people in to sing our song, the song of the resurrection. 
Who are you inviting? Because we're going to have a powerful service here on Easter. Who are you inviting? Who are you bringing with you? Because it's going to be a big day. And it doesn't matter what background somebody comes from, there's going to be something for them in this message. Who are you inviting? A few weeks ago, I used a sermon illustration where I brought out some of these cups like you get at Hideaway Pizza or Eskimo Joe's. Here's the picture I showed of my cabinet, if you'll remember. It's full of those cups. Um, you can tell I'm a true oaky now because I've got all those cups. Somebody told me the other day that that's Oklahoma, China. I don't know if that's true or not, but I know I'm not the only one that collects those cups. Well, we've actually had some made up. They're a little different than the Hideaway Cups. We tried to get them as close as we could, but they're first church cups. And on the back, it says, Love Jesus, Love Like Jesus, has our website. But this is what we want you to do. On the way out the door, you can grab one or two of these. If you want to take one for yourself, that's fine, because they're cool to drink out of. I'll just let you know. But if you want to take one for yourself, that's fine. But I want you to take one for someone else. And this is what we want to challenge you to do. Fill it up with candy. Put one of those invite cards that we have around the building. Put one of those invite cards in there with some candy. Take it to your neighbor. Take it to your coworker. Take it to your teammate. Take it to your friend, your family member, whoever, and invite them to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with us on Easter. I want to challenge you to do that because there's somebody right now in your life that needs to sing the song that we're singing. They're waiting to sing it, honestly. Remember when I held up the Declaration of Independence earlier? Guys, I think Jesus wants to be so much more in our lives than what we've let him be. Don't miss who he is. Don't overlook what he can do in your life. Don't ignore the power that he wants to give you. He wants to be in your life for a reason. And it's a reason greater than you. It's a reason, it's a purpose. It's as big as the universe itself. Realize what you have in him. And when you do, and when you sing his song, together we'll change the world. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we've had to be here together. And Father, we just love you so much and we thank you for the grace that you've shown us, the new identity you've given us, and the place we have in your great plan. Father, may we be a people who always sing, sing a song of the resurrection, a song of victory. And so as we close here today as a church family, let us sing together. Because what would make us sing? Your son, Jesus, is why.